0: Charles E. Coleman, About Ned, 129, Harvard Law Review Forum, 128, 2016. The great peculiarity of the privacy cases is our predominant, though not exclusive, focus on sexuality. Not sex, as such, of course, but sexuality in the broad sense of that term. The network of decisions and conduct relating to the conditions under which sex is permissible, the social institutions surrounding sexual relationships, and the procreative consequences of sex. Nothing in the privacy cases says that the doctrine must gravitate around sexuality. Nevertheless, it has. Jed Rubenfeld, The Right to Privacy. Part 1. Telling Stories. In December of 1890, the Harvard Law Review published an article co-authored by Boston law firm partners Samuel Warren and Lewis Brandeis, titled The Right to Privacy. The piece reflected on the harms caused by gossip and press intrusions into people's private lives and argued that judges could, and should, make use of existing legal authority to recognize a new tort for the invasion of individual privacy. 125 years after its publication, The right to privacy enjoys a reputation as one of the most famous and influential law review articles ever written, having played a notable role in the Supreme Court's development of a constitutional right to personal autonomy. Because the right to privacy has loomed so large in the American legal consciousness for so long, and, no doubt, because it has been invoked in Supreme Court decisions on some of the most most controversial issues of the past century, many scholars have displayed curiosity about the article's backstory. Legal historian Stuart Banner summarizes the bulk of such scholarly musings thusly. The traditional explanation of the origin of the right to privacy emphasizes Warren's irritation with sensationalist press coverage of his daughter's wedding. As Banner notes, this conventional account must be apocryphal, given that Warren's daughter was only six years old when her father took the lead on the 1890 article. Despite the chronological impossibility of this story, scholars echoed it for decades likely due in part to its appearance in, other, in another influential R.V. article on privacy written by Dean William Prosser in 1960. Recently, however, more probing explanations of the article's origin have begun to appear. Several scholars, for example, have explored the role of newly affordable and portable photographic technology in the years leading up to the article's publication. Even so, what truly provoked Warren, who is thought to be the moving force behind the article, has remained a mystery. This statement by law and journalism scholar Amy Gaida in 2008 remains accurate today, despite Gaida's careful survey of news coverage that might explain the author's personal stake in the legal crusade they launched. Gaida, for her part, concluded that Samuel D. Warren bristled at the way the press reported on the prominent political family into which he married, and that such coverage motivated the article. Yet, One cannot help but feel that important pieces of the puzzle are still missing. While no single account can ever tell the whole story, there is an intriguing perspective on the right to privacy that has not yet been explored, even as it is practically begged for attention. Resisting the urge to speculate on the reasons for the scholarly literature's silence on the particular narrative offered here, I proceed to weave an origin story of the right to privacy of special resonance for me In this personal, cultural, and jurisprudential moment. Part 2. About Sam. The leading biography of the Warren family of 19th century Beacon Hill, Boston, explains that Samuel Warren, Jr. had always been the striver of the brood, while the children, as he called his four younger siblings, Henry, born 1854, Cornelia, born 1857, Edward Ned, born 1860, and Frederick Fisk, born 1862, had each turned away from high society at a young age, Sam doggedly pursued membership in it. Indeed, he achieved a foothold in that society by marrying into the prominent Bayard family whose old money and political power helped to remedy Sam's insecurity about the Warren's less established position. Sam's hunger for status served to fuel his academic and social success at Harvard College and Harvard Law School, his membership in and eventual leadership of important Boston clubs and cultural institutions, and of course, his building of a successful law firm, Warren and Brandeis. Yet, as Amy Guida's survey of 1880s press coverage reveals, these achievements earned Sam a decidedly pale patch in the national spotlight. He was, it seems perpetually in the background as his vivacious wife Mabel and the other Bayards glittered in the social and political limelight. The picture of Sam's relationship with his siblings is altogether different. The Warren family, a reflection of the maelstrom of historical forces in Boston at the end of the 19th century, was a group with more than its share of secrets and lies. Sam's social and professional ascent, while ultimately less dramatic than he might have hoped increased the likelihood that the public would grow curious about the dirty laundry of these barely compatible individualists, not easily compatible with the other milder people, let alone with each other. In part because of this strife, Sam remained a dutiful son who was sentimentally attached to his siblings long after his marriage into the Bayard family. That sense of duty only intensified after the family patriarch died in 1888, Thereafter, Sam took the position of head of the Warrens very seriously. This aspect of Sam's life, widely overlooked by legal scholars investigating the backstory of the right to privacy, is central to the narrative I offer below. The family's biographer notes that Sam's expression of his sense of responsibility was often unwelcome among his siblings, even as they relied on him, to varying degrees, to handle their financial and legal affairs. While Sam did use his legal knowledge and fiduciary positions to exert a certain degree of control over his siblings, his overarching goal appears to have been the family's well-being and the preservation of its good name. Indeed, Sam would continue conscientiously representing his siblings in public matters long after they had reached adulthood. Certain siblings, however, presented greater challenges than others. Part 3. About Ned A great deal of Sam's energy went into his relationship with his brother Ned. If it is indeed a blessing to live in interesting times, then Edward Perry Warren was dangerously blessed. Ned, eight years Sam's junior, found himself entering adulthood and achieving an understanding of his same-sex attraction at the precise moment in Anglo-American history when scientists and the public first proclaimed and recognized the existence of men like Ned as a fixed and pathologized category of persons. A dominant scientific notion of homosexuality began to crystallize in the Anglo-American consciousness in the 1880s, and especially in the few years leading up to Sam's writing of the right to privacy. Both the conceptualization of and terminology used to describe such sexual deviance, pederists, inverts, etc., sound foreign today, though perhaps not as foreign as the broader cultural logic ascendant during that time period. For many white, middle-class Americans of the period, for whom evolutionary theory offered seemingly endless explanatory power, including, and maybe especially, among the legal establishment, same-sex intimacy was deeply linked with the notion of degeneracy. This new degeneracy meant something more than the moral deterioration, the imagined effects of large-scale immigration on the moral and physical well-being of American society, and a host of other destabilizing phenomena. The American public living in the large cities on the east coast was thus alerted to a supposedly imminent descent into sexual anarchy during the same decade in which Ned Warren graduated from Harvard went on to attend Oxford where he would more enthusiastically and overtly embrace his sexuality and come to identify as a devout and vocal platonic esthete received and quickly began spending an enormous annual stipend dispensed after his father's 1888 passing and convened a group of like-minded gay men to live communally in a Sussex mansion dedicated to the appreciation of art and sensuality in the ancient Greek tradition. Sam, as a cosmopolitan and highly educated professional, might well have foreseen the coming homosexual panic before most others experienced it firsthand. Regardless, by the time Sam wrote The Right to Privacy, both the medical profession and the legal system had decisively pronounced judgment on sexual deviance like Ned. The new sexual types of the pederast and invert posed a serious sexual danger. White, middle-class Anglo-American society was quickly learning to be hypervigilant for, and was increasingly inclined to use the legal system against, homosexual men in the very same years in which Ned was building an increasingly visible gay life for himself." Sam took seriously his self-appointed role as the head of the family and the politically savviest of the Warrens to protect Ned, perhaps the most vulnerable of the Warren children. This undertaking likely struck Sam as especially necessary and difficult because Ned's mannerisms, personal interactions, and intellectual and aesthetic interests would have marked him as a presumptive homosexual in the eyes of a growing portion of an increasingly suspicious Anglo-American public. As Sam had witnessed for years, Ned never made much of an effort to present himself as manly in the way expected of mid-19th century Bostonian boys. Indeed, he had often involuntarily drawn attention to himself as gay. Ned's sexual nonconformity would blossom in the mid-1880s into a multifaceted identity, encapsulated in his self-identification as a Uranian. The Uranian label entailed not only same-sex attraction, but a comprehensive philosophy endorsed, albeit largely in private, by many gay men in Europe and the United States in the late 19th century. First and foremost, the Iranian lifestyle meant, at least for Ned, a homoeroticism that was an essential stimulus to everything of substance that he undertook. Of great secondary importance, however, the Iranian outlook on life often went hand in hand with the tenets of aestheticism, a philosophy directly in the American public eye, as newspaper coverage and satirical cartoons make clear, as early as 1882, when Oscar Wilde embarked on an epic-speaking tour of the United States to champion this central aesthetic tenet of art for art's sake. As mainstream Anglo-American society would learn in the final decades of the century, many famous esthetes and the artists they lauded, including John Keats, Lord Byron, and later Lord Tennyson, shared an affinity for same-sex intimacy, and admired its acceptance in the ancient world, especially Greece. Such beliefs ran directly contrary to late 19th century notions of progress. They often represented a near sacrilegious rejection of the widespread ascendance of science over art. Ned had been, from a relatively young age, an impassioned Hellenist who found in ancient Greece the philosophical moorings necessary to make sense of his own unconventional sexuality. Further, since his time at Harvard College, he had been drawn to the homoerotic poetry of Shelley, Wilde, and especially Swinburne. Sam, of course, was acquainted with his brother's interests and would have grown increasingly alarmed as popular associations between those interests and homosexuality emerged onto the cultural landscape in the 1880s. As early as 1881, for example, a popular Gilbert and Sullivan operetta called Patience linked the classics, the esthetes, and same-sex passion. One character, a Wildean esthete named Bunthorne, sang about thinly-veiled same-sex tendencies in lyrics concerning an attachment a la plateau. The dangers for Ned would grow significantly over the course of the 1880s, even as, and perhaps especially because, he fled to England seeking the life he imagined. Historian Alison Hennigan recounts the most worrisome legal development of the time period for men engaged in same-sex intimacy. The provisions of England's 1885 Criminal Law Amendment Act, with its utter indifference to the public or private nature of sexual exchanges between men, removed at a stroke the traditional equation of private space with safe space. From that point on, homosexual domesticity became a source of danger. Shared lives leave physical traces—letters, diaries, pictures or photographs, gifts of books or cigarette cases with loving inscriptions—all of these are perilous. They are the proof, the evidence—both these words now appropriately carrying heavy legal overtones of a living relationship—any of the above, left carelessly lying about and seen by hostile eyes, imperil their owner, sender, or giver. In the years following the passage of this law, popularly known as the La Amendment, the risks for Ned would only grow. The two-year period between the death of the Warren Family Patriarch in 1888 and Sam's publication of the right to privacy brought a quick succession of potentially dangerous developments. Newly flush, Ned began to use his newly available yearly stipend from the family trust to travel extensively, primarily to regions that had become strongly associated with homosexuality. Moreover, Ned threw his efforts into collecting Greek vases and similar antiquities, many featuring explicit homosexual imagery, and proceeded to initiate correspondence on the subject with the Boston Museum in July 1890. Probably most worrisome, from Sam's perspective, was Ned's 1889 discovery, an April 1890 lease of a grand estate in Sussex named Lou's House, which Ned converted into a sort of Uranian Neverland populated by esthetes and their guests. It is difficult to say exactly how much Sam knew about Ned's plans for Lua's house, but it seems that the rest of the Warren family began to harbor well-founded suspicions about Ned's same-sex attraction much earlier, probably during, if not before, the years he spent at Oxford in the mid-1880s, and certainly after Ned met his eventual longtime companion, John Marshall, while still in school there. Indeed, Ned repeatedly took Marshall to meet and spend time with the family, and it became clear fairly quickly that the two were something akin to what we might call partners today. In any event, Sam would certainly have known that Louis's house was a large property requiring maintenance, and thus vulnerable to the potentially prying eyes of domestic employees. Sam surely knew of Ned's plans to fill the house with expensive Greek art, From the moment Ned began to draw on the family trust in 1888, there were recurring arguments between Sam and Ned over the latter's expenditures on Greek art, much of which would likely have been deemed obscene by the average viewer. Perhaps most importantly, Sam had reason to believe that Ned himself might be careless about the public's discovery of his sexuality and or what went on at Lewis' house, a concern that was increasingly warranted. In short, Sam would have understood, in the years leading up to his writing of the right to privacy, that Ned's ostentatious, homosocial, upper-class life of leisure carried on among a colorful group of artists and other bachelors would have made Ned an attractive and easy target for anyone with a personal, political, or financial axe to grind. Indeed, in certain respects, Sam might have better understood the socio-cultural landscape and political dynamics bearing on Ned's well-being, even from across the Atlantic, than did his younger brother. What was a self-appointed guardian to do? Part 4. Prosecutions and Prevention The law took note of the cultural developments discussed above. Indeed, Oscar Wilde's 1895 prosecution for gross indecency made so dramatic an impression on the Anglo-American public, in large part because it was the highest-profile legal intervention into same-sex relations of the 19th century. Historian Alan Sinfield describes the conviction as a moment in which the entire, vaguely disconcerting nexus of of effeminacy, leisure, idleness, immorality, luxury, insouciance, decadence, and aestheticism was transformed into a brilliantly precise image in the Anglo-American cultural imagination. But while the wild trials were unprecedented in public impact, the law had certainly been deployed against gay men before. Of particular note for my narrative of the right to privacy, the late 1880s saw a dramatic rise in criminal prosecutions of sexually deviant men from respectable families. As historian Charles Upchurch notes, the Anglo-American homosexual scandal trials of the late 19th century, marked by a new way of politicizing sex between men, facilitated by the interrelated developments of the working class beginning to read newspapers en masse, and the emergence of the new journalism of the later 19th century that changed the rules for reporting sex between men. Sam Warren, a worldly and well-informed professional involved in a wide range of public affairs, would have been well-informed about the various homosexual scandals of the 1880s, particularly in light of Sam's suspicions about Ned's sexuality. These episodes would have been especially alarming for Sam after Ned's return to Boston in 1887-1888 to 1888, by which point the estate's Uranian outlook on life had become emphatic and all-encompassing. On the heels of Ned's visit to Boston, during which any number of conversations about Ned's private life might have occurred, Sam would learn of the so-called Cleveland Street Scandal of 1889-1890, a series of sensational trials concerning upper-class men paying for sex with telegraph delivery boys. This might well have been the final nudge necessary for Sam to decide he would take some sort of action. The status-obsessed man of the political and business world understood the growing potency of rumors about his brother. Rumors that, if investigated or leveraged by the wrong person, could cause immeasurable harm not only to Ned, but to the entire Warren family. In reading the right to privacy against the backdrop sketched above, many of the article's otherwise prosaic passages gain a new resonance. I urge the reader to carefully parse the complete text of the article and reach her own conclusions, even as I highlight and flesh out a handful of excerpts here. While public figures, in varying degrees, have renounced the right to live their lives screened from public observation, peculiarities of manner and person of the ordinary individuals should be free from comment. As noted above, most accounts of the right to privacy focus on Sam's purported ire at press intrusions into the lives of the socially and politically prominent Bairds. Sam's experience as a new member of that family after his 1882 marriage to Mabel Baird might well have opened his eyes to the power of the press. That experience does not, however, correspond to any significant degree with the concerns expressed in the 1890 article about the privacy of those who, unlike the Bairds, had not renounced the right to live their lives screened from public observation. The intensity and complexity of life attendant upon advancing civilization have rendered necessary some retreat from the world, and man, under the refining influence of culture, has become more sensitive to publicity. Ned had essentially retreated from the world by 1890, finding Boston and cities in general both distasteful and anxiety-inducing. As anyone meeting him would immediately gather his anxiety was one of the defining characteristics of his personality the condition that chronically plagued his health from 1885 onward would soon be medically diagnosed as neurasthenia a condition that was commonly linked in the popular imagination with sexual deviance such connections received a scientific imprimatur from the leading 1880s treatise on sexual inverts Richard von Kraft-Ebbing's Psychopathia Sexualis. In the 1889 edition of Kraft-Ebbing's book, for instance, the author devotes special attention to a case study purportedly illustrating the defective organization of the highest cerebral centers of an abnormal and defective person, who identified as an aesthete and reportedly wished to spend his session with Kraft-Ebbing discussing painting and poetry. The man under examination was described as having a shy, effeminate manner and nervous disposition. To satisfy a prurient taste, the details of sexual relations are spread broadcast in the columns of the Daily Papers. In this early passage in the right to privacy, Warren the consideration of the right of a photographer of circulating portraits. Yet, as Warren points out, the law concerning the rights and duties associated with commissioned photography was essentially settled. The New York case Warren cites, then, sticks out as something of a non sequitur to the rhetoric surrounding it. That rhetoric resonates to a far greater degree with the subject Sam could not realistically address in a public forum for reasons of social convention, the atmosphere of widespread anxiety about sexual deviance in the late 1880s. As noted above, the late 19th century bore witness to several infamous trials of gay men, which invariably received a sustained level of public attention. Such attention was driven by news coverage much more sensational and readily accessible than that of even a few decades earlier, when newspapers had shown reluctance to mix up the name of a highly respectable individual with so atrocious an accusation. In the new cultural landscape, Sam correctly understood Ned's private life might through a single slip-up or personal falling out, something Sam might accurately have deemed a reasonable possibility, become very public, very quickly. Even gossip, apparently harmless, when widely and persistently circulated, is potent for evil. It both belittles and perverts. It belittles by inverting the relative importance of things, thus dwarfing the thoughts and aspirations of a people by drawing attention to the misfortunes and frailties of our neighbors. In light of the risks identified above, Sam uses this passage as a clever way to turn the tables against those who might be inclined to expose Ned's status as a sexual invert, recharacterizing the would-be invader of privacy as the figure who has inverted the natural state of things by prioritizing private sexual practices over more important political matters. He further characterizes anyone seeking to expose such traits as, essentially, a bully, preying upon the misfortunes and frailties of others, a line of rhetoric that could be found in the portion of medical discourse advocating for treatment, not criminal punishment, of homosexuals. Numerous mechanical devices threatened to make good the prediction that what is whispered in the closet shall be proclaimed from the housetops. But the design of the law must be to protect those persons with whose affairs the community has no legitimate concern, from being dragged into an undesirable and undesired publicity, and to protect all persons whatsoever, their position or station, from having matters which they may properly prefer to keep private made public against their will." As mentioned above, the late 19th century saw an increased frequency of application of the law to same-sex intimacy. This was facilitated by changes to extortion law that allowed men to bring their social betters into court on their word alone. Even more instrumental to this development was La Boucher's famous amendment to English criminal law in 1885, expressly extending severe penalties for same-sex intimacy in public or private. And further eliminating the evidentiary requirement that a non-participating party to an unlawful same-sex encounter give testimony in order for the state to secure a conviction, such legal reform, fueled by the newly emphatic social stigma associated with homosexuality, earned the 1885 Labouchere Amendment an ominous nickname: the Blackmailer's Charter. Ned's wealth and increasingly ostentatious displays of his ideology and sexuality made him an appealing target for potential blackmail, prosecution, or both. Such campaigns often rested on intimate letters, a recurring theme in the actual or barely averted gay scandals of the late 19th century. It often happened that incriminating materials fell into the wrong hands, and to the extent one could not enjoin their use, could prove devastating to their authors. This backdrop provides an intuitive way to make sense of Sam Warren's near obsessive focus in the right to privacy on the principle of limited publication, the right to prevent others from publishing material from letters to lists, whether or not independently protectable under intellectual property law. Persecution of homosexuals during this time period was especially likely where there was a paper trail, making Ned more vulnerable than the average 19th century gay man because of his extensive, if largely unpublished, writing. Ned's immediate audience was apparently like-minded friends who shared his own aesthetic leanings and erotic tastes. Indeed, confidential circulation of often elusive works was a common practice among 19th century gays and lesbians with literary, if only epistolary, inclinations. Yet Ned also wished for his poetry to be read, especially in the 1880s and 1890s, before his interests shifted markedly from the literary arts to the visual realm. During his period of productivity as a poet, from 1882, when he was still living in Boston and attending Harvard College, to 1902, he would use the pseudonym Arthur Lyon Rail, a convention he observed for any publications of a homoerotic character. Of course, few writers of any era have managed to keep their nom de plume secret for long, especially when attached to high-profile and controversial works. Although Ned's work would never achieve a substantial readership, Sam had good reason to be concerned about the possible use of Ned's poetry, whether published or unpublished, against him. The right to privacy attempts to address this concern. Sam's idiosyncratic invocation of legal authority, especially on the issue of limited publication, makes his focus on this narrow issue all the more striking. In advancing the proposition for example that the common law secures to each individual the right of determining ordinarily to what extent his thoughts sentiments and emotions shall be communicated to others sam cites the then century-old case miller v taylor and the dissenting judge's opinion therein no less his use of this hoary british case was of a piece with the general legal methodology of the argument which relied almost exclusively on english case law and treatises even on many issues where American case law and treatises provided ample guidance, along with several untranslated excerpts from French law. It is possible that this was merely part of Warren's argumentative strategy. Some scholars have argued that the hierarchical nature of British society has resulted in greater respect for privacy not only in governmental affairs, but in society at large, though such an argument makes for a somewhat disingenuous legal argument obscuring the fairly radical character of Warren's position under American law. That Sam's argument was more tenuous than he suggested, and so reliant on English precedent even where American precedent existed, suggests one, that he was willing to potentially compromise his professional credibility or reputation for careful legal analysis, only bolstering the likelihood that he had a personal stake in the matter to con- counterbalance these risks and or Two, that he was writing, at least in part, with an eye to the country that had become Ned's primary home and potential location of victimization, and where, just as importantly, ideas espoused by the intellectuals and professionals of Boston, perhaps to the exclusion of other American cities, did wield some influence on the direction of elite thinking. The allowance of certain defamation-related damages would seem to be a recognition that the invasion upon the honor of the family is an injury to the parent's person. I conclude my quoting of the right to privacy with this passage, though I might include many others that will likely jump out at the interested reader equipped with knowledge about Ned, because it represents one of the relatively few instances of what might be called distancing language, would seem to be a recognition, in Warren's otherwise forceful and often unqualified rhetoric. Whereas, throughout most of the article, Warren is unabashedly direct in stating his views about the importance of privacy and the harms arising from its violation, he suddenly becomes guarded when the subject of injury to familiar honor arises. This was perhaps one of his few attempts to depersonalize an article in which, for a reader familiar with Ned's idiosyncrasies, much of the rhetoric employed by Sam to make his argument might seem quite painfully on the nose. One possibility is that Sam's awkward specificity represented mere clumsiness and or a lack of objectivity in a piece apparently never edited by Brandeis, who Sam himself had long acknowledged was the brains of the team, because of the future justices' general indifference to the article. Alternatively, the article's superficially artless particularity might have been a savvy, strategic shot across the bow to the many Bostonians already in the know, to varying degrees, about Ned. Indeed, one wonders if Sam's comment early in the article that no generous impulse can survive under gossip's blighting influence was a warning to Bostonians that the Warren family's philanthropic pursuits throughout the region might quickly cease if any of its members, especially its least public and most vulnerable, were targeted. Or perhaps Sam was trying to split the difference, using examples and language that would evoke Ned for those already familiar with his proclivities, while seizing on popular sentiment, recent litigation, and purported co-authorship. It is our purpose to consider whether the existing law affords a principle which can properly be invoked to protect the privacy of the individual, so that the argument would seem both generalizable and compelling to readers who had no particular familiarity with the Warren family. Of course, even if fraternal loyalty did factor into Sam's decision to pursue the project of the right to privacy, he naturally had his own more selfish interests in helping Ned to avoid public disgrace. The consequences of having a family member exposed as a sodomite extended beyond shame in the narrow sense some might sadly still be able to relate to today. Such a revelation might suggest that an entire family's blood was tainted at least according to Psychopathia Sexualis, which declared, in almost all cases where an examination of the physical and mental peculiarities of the ancestors and blood relations has been possible, neuroses, psychoses, degenerative signs, etc., have been found in the families. Perhaps for this reason, one scholar has written, at any moment in the 19th century, someone somewhere was burning the papers of a homosexual relative. To be sure, nothing I write here forecloses the possibility that Sam's experiences as a new member of the Warren Bayard family informed or even partly motivated his writing of the right to privacy. Indeed, to the extent that homosexuality was widely described as a hereditary taint, it might well have damaged the reputation of the politically prominent Warren Bayard family, and cast a shadow of suspicion on Sam's children with Mabel, if Ned's secret had gotten out. Part 5 epilogue. If my account of Sam's motivations for writing the right to privacy is plausible, then the article would seem to acquire a new and special resonance on its 125th anniversary. The rhetoric and reasoning in the piece can be traced, link by link, albeit with important modifications along the way, to Supreme Court decisions that cumulatively established a constitutional right to personal autonomy. Initially, the article's influence was felt primarily in state court decisions concerning invasions of privacy by private parties. However, it would secure a place in constitutional jurisprudence when, in 1928, then-Justice Brandeis penned a powerful dissent echoing key principles of the right to privacy in the Fourth Amendment case of Olmstead v. United States. Brandeis's reasoning in Olmstead, along with the article itself, would be invoked by the Supreme Court in important criminal procedure decisions over the next few decades. But the notion of privacy would not remain confined to the realm of government investigations. Starting in the 1960s, perhaps spurred by the acute threat McCarthyism had posed to individual liberty, academic and judicial rhetoric embraced an increasingly robust notion of the right to privacy. The principle made the decisive leap beyond criminal procedure in the 1965 case of Griswold v. Connecticut, where a majority of the Supreme Court, whose justices cited Olmsted and even the right to privacy specifically, found a constitutional right to contraception for married couples in the penumbras of various constitutional amendments touching on privacy concerns. The expansive understanding of privacy articulated in Griswold would be invoked and extended to unmarried individuals seeking to invalidate a governmental ban on contraception in Eisenstadt v. Baird, in a majority decision grounded in important part on the Equal Protection Clause. The Griswold ruling and its progeny would later be richly, if controversially, interpreted through the lens of liberty as self-determination by a three-justice plurality whose decision carried the day in Planned Parenthood of southeastern Pennsylvania v. Casey. Core passages and principles from those cases would soon take center stage in the landmark gay rights decisions of Lawrence v. Texas, United States v. Windsor, in the 125th year after the publication of the right to privacy, Obergefell v. Hodges, where the Supreme Court recognized a fundamental constitutional right to marry someone of the same sex. It is here that the story I have told about two brothers, each traditionally relegated to the footnotes of history, takes on special resonance. For a desire on Sam's part to protect his gay brother if indeed a motivating factor in the authorship of the right to privacy, would mean that a piece published in an effort to preserve the autonomy of one gay man was, in a circuitous but nonetheless concrete way, a 125-year-old precursor of a Supreme Court ruling securing the protection of a crucial right for every gay American. There are many things about the United States in the 21st century that Ned would surely dislike some with good reason, some due to aspects of Ned's own worldview that appear as distastefully antiquated as the widespread prejudice Ned sought to escape by moving abroad and creating a gay community at Lewis house. But one hopes that if Ned were alive today in this post Burgefell world, he would at least entertain the possibility of building a life for himself in his home country. He would still face prejudice, to be sure, but he would also see the law's respect for the most important relationship in his life. And remarkably... That respect might well be, in some non-quantifiable but eminently meaningful way, due to his brother's article, an article that, in the poetic mirror of historical imagination, can be read and appreciated as a piece about Ned.